What's a Monday morning on RHU without Little Dark Age? Good morning. You're listening to 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University broadcasting live from the Richard Philip Cavalera studio. This is the Monday edition of Hofstra's Morning Wake Up Call where we are talking Long Island life, national news, and international issues. I'm your producer, Danny DiCrescenzo, joined by Sibyl Rateau, Amelia Sack, and Nick Costanzo, the Manic Monday crew, as Nick says. Guys, how was your fall break? Really quickly, go around the horn. How was it? Start with Sibyl. Uh, unfortunately, mine was somewhat uneventful as I fell ill right as fall break started. So I didn't get to do all the fall, all the fun fall activities that I saw everyone doing on social media. So I'm a little bitter, but not too much since I'm getting my weekly dose of morning wake up call. But Amelia, the was, best medicine. Yes, exactly. Um, Amelia, how was your fall break? Well, I'm sorry to hear about that, Sibyl, but my fall break, it was very restful and nice. I got to go home to Pennsylvania and uh, spend some time with my family. And I was noticing that there's like much more fall foliage there than I've ever seen on Long Island. I must, I might just be like on the wrong part of Long Island, but at least in Hempstead around our area, there's not too much nice fall foliage so I was kind of missing out on that so it was nice to be able to get a little bit of that in before I come back for midterms this week. I do agree with the Pennsylvania foliage I was actually there for my father's 50th this weekend a lot of fun saw the cows and the chickens and all that great rural stuff. That's great I went up to Saratoga uh, with uh, Rachel Yao and Lindsay here from RHU we had to go to the Janney Awards to accept some hardware on behalf of RHU was really fun. And there was so much fall foliage made for some great autumn Instagram posts. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that was a really fun little retreat. But we're back on the morning show, 887 WRHU. And, you know, we talk about the foliage out there, but I'm curious as to the weather today. And that's why we have a future News 12 meteorologist, Nick Costanzo, that's to give correct. us the gist of what is going on weather-wise. So, Nick, please enlighten us. What is going on 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 the weather front? Okay, so for today's weather forecast, it's currently 60 degrees outside of our WRHU studios here at Hofstra. And up in the sky, it's unfortunately cloudy. The rest of the day should be cloudy and rainy, with an expected high of 64 degrees during the day and a low of 50 degrees in the evening. Shoddy weather. Yeah, it's not good. And yeah. you know what's you know what's the worst part? I have I have a date tonight, Nick. Oh, I have a date. I'm I missed my girlfriend's birthday. Oh, so we're going out to dinner tonight, and okay. the weather's pretty crappy. But hopefully, the place I booked I booked was is going to be fun. Yes. Well, if you get a a cake, just for your little mishap there, I think it should be okay. Yeah. Just, <laughs> I don't I don't like I don't like the late autumn rain. I like the rain in the summer. I don't like the rain in the autumn. Mm. But that's going to do it for weather. You know, not great, but also could be worse. Uh, but speaking of things that could be worse, there was some really shocking news this morning internationally, and that's where we're going to go to our new segment. It's called Sibyl's Three Things You Need to Know in the Morning mm-hmm. uh, with our co-host, Sibyl Rateau. So, Sibyl, please, what is going on? What do our audience members need to know this morning? All right, so first off, residential buildings in the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv, have been damaged after drone attacks on a central district earlier this morning. More details will likely come later regarding the number of casualties, so thoughts and prayers. 
But in lighter news, as Halloween approaches, the cost of candy is up by 13 percent, according to the most recent inflation report from the from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So listeners, you might have to reconsider if you want to give tricks over treats, whatever that may entail. And on Friday, climate protesters threw soup over the Van Gogh sunflower painting to protest fossil fuel extractions. Fortunately, they caused no damage to the actual painting because it was covered in glass. And those are the three things for this morning. Spills, three things you need to know. Thank you so much, Sibyl. And I want to, okay, first of all, the Kiev bombings, you know, just we talked about this last show. It just, it never ends. And the war is getting just, we're numb to it at this point. That's what's scary. The Halloween thing, I mean, that's that's where I draw the line. Like, the economy is bad, but like this, hmm. this is it, man. Right. And, but I want to go back to those climate protesters because I'm I'm cognizant of climate change as much as the next guy. But this, I don't think that's helping the yeah. that's not helping matters at all. I yeah, I was definitely curious on what exactly they thought they were doing. Um, it seems like it, it it's like the as performative as you can get when it comes to activism. But who knows where their intentions were? And that's a. That Van Gogh painting is worth millions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, good thing it's not damaged, obviously. That's a priceless piece of art. But it just, it doesn't, it only draws attention to them. It does not draw attention to themselves in a way. It, oh, it does not draw attention to their cause. It draws attention to themselves. Right. And I think that's just, it just doesn't help. You know, there are better ways to protest and go into, and I feel like this is the first time we've seen vandalism at art museums for this very reason. Wasn't there the whole thing about the Mona Lisa? People were trying to get to it that one were time. Were they? Was it also having to do with climate change? I think or? it was. Something climate or, I don't know. No, how, did they, how do those correlate? Am I missing something? <laughs> no. That's what I'm thinking. Because I, I feel like I'm very, like, you know, I, I'm decently aware of the issues with climate. Right. And I care. I try to do my part. I agree. But I just feel like when it comes to, like, specifically, like, climate activists or climate protesters, they seem to, like, do the least um, I feel like they're usually the ones who are very performative with like what they do and it doesn't actually do anything or actually like, I don't know, spread useful awareness. Um, but maybe that's just me. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I, we're missing there's, something. There's always, there are the protests that stick out in our minds and then there are the protests like this one that are only no- notable because they just seem so random and, you know, needless. I mean, the same thing goes for, wasn't there that, like you know every time there's like a there's like a streaker right like that just even if they're doing it for a cause or something that doesn't help matters yeah it's still like you could donate money you could instead of embarrassing yourself yeah. on national tv put on a shirt. because Ooh. no one remembers why you did it they just remember that you did it right, right. i think that's the big takeaway here well thank you so much for that sibyl and you know for some great elaboration on protesting i think that's a good um good way to look at it and speaking of what some people called a protest, we're going to talk to about our first story. It's called it's called Trump subpoenaed by January 6th committee. And this the latest episode in the January 6th saga, it was a doozy to say to the least. So Friday of last week, January 6th committee voted unanimously to subpoena former President Donald Trump, demanding that he testify before them over his alleged role in facilitating the storming of the U.S. Capitol. I am offering this resolution that the committee direct the chairman to issue a subpoena for relevant documents and testimony under oath from Donald John Trump 
in connection with the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. A bevy of new evidence on the extremist presence was provided by Trump's cabinet members and secret services and a shocking new video of lawmakers from Nancy Pelosi to Chuck Schumer to Mitch McConnell. They were phoning for help during the attack from neighboring governors and Trump's acting attorney general. This was also shown in the meeting and it was from a documentary that Nancy Pelosi's daughter was making. It was pretty shocking. Committee Chair Benny Thompson called Trump's actions a, quote, staggering betrayal of his oath to office. And he said that the committee demands, demands his testimony. He is required to answer for his actions. He's required to answer to those police officers who put their lives and bodies on the line to defend our democracy. He's required to answer to those millions of Americans who votes he wanted to throw out as part of his scheme to remain in power. Now, I did some research, and Presidents Jefferson, Nixon, and Clinton have been subpoenaed while in office with mixed results. Jefferson merely provided documents related to the treason trial of one Aaron Burr. Shout out if you've ever seen Hamilton. Nixon, of course, resigned, and Clinton got the subpoena rescinded after agreeing to testify voluntarily. Never has a former president been subpoenaed before. We also recognize that a subpoena to a former president is a serious and extraordinary action. That's why we want to take this step in full view of the American people, especially because the subject matter at issue is so important to the American people and the stakes are so high for our future and our democracy. Trump for his part, blasted the Committee on Truth Social, criticizing them for not demanding his testimony earlier, even though he also said in the same breath that he wouldn't have given it and called the committee a, quote, total bust. He is definitely not going to cooperate. I think that's fair to say. And, you know, with the midterms going, getting closer and closer, this situation just gets murkier and murkier as to what's actually going to happen. My prediction is just that he's going to wait out the committee because so many people on this panel they're going to be out of office. I think Liz Cheney and Adam Kissinger for, for two of them. But uh, I wanted to bring that to the forum for you guys. Amelia Seville, what are you guys thinking about this whole situation? Well, not only, Danny, did he blast the committee on Truth Social, he also wrote them a 14-page letter. So mm -hmm. just think about that for a minute. And um, one of the things he shared in this letter and on his site was despite very poor television ratings, the unselect committee has perpetuated a show trial the likes of which this country has never seen before. Again, that's a direct quote from Donald Trump. Uh, he even criticized the committee uh, in his letter for not investigating his claims of uh, voter fraud in 2020 and, you know, re repeated that he actually won the election and that he's like, well, why aren't you investigating that? Um, the committee has shown evidence that Trump himself knew he had lost the election and had been informed repeatedly by the White House, the campaign and the Justice Department aides um, that, you know, these claims were false. He knew they were false. He knew he lost the election. Uh, you know, I, we're going to keep hearing about this for a while. And as we've kind of talked about before, I don't think he will ever be held accountable for his actions. Truly, I just think he's too rich and powerful and he'll be able to buy his way out of anything. But this is just another example of him just in for a lack of better word, just being a sore loser and just being just being Trump. It's just it's just a little bit comical at this point. What about you, Seville? 
Right. I'm I'm with Amelia. Like it is a little comical. Honestly, I'm just like Amelia was saying, I don't really see much coming out of this. I'm not surprised by Trump's reaction. 14 pages would seem dramatic for any other p- political figure, but with him it seems just about right. Um yeah, but honestly at this point it just seems like January 6th was just like obviously we need, you know, it this is history. He's he's the first former president to be subpoenaed. But I don't know that much is going to come from this. Honestly, I'm just like sitting back and watching the drama unfold and hoping that maybe this like, I don't know. I don't even know what to think about it. It's just like when you watch like things like this happen to Trump, you're just like flabbergasted over and over again by his by his grand reactions. Yeah, it's he's always going to react one th- way or another. But I will say that his platform on Truth Social much more muted than on Twitter. I want to play one more clip from Thompson, who I think summed up why Trump should be subpoenaed. Here it is. He is the one person at the center of the story of what happened on January 6th. So we want to hear from him. I think that's absolutely right. He is the nexus of the event. And it's been crystal clear that he was signing off on things. He was present. He wanted to go to the Capitol. And just that video he made after the the whole thing happened where he said to the pro te- to the rioters go home we love you i mean that was so chilling that was just anti-american the evidence is overwhelming that trump was up to no good on january 6th that's enough of a reason for him to be subpoenaed because he might have been involved even if you want to be really conservative and say he might have been involved you don't let somebody off the leash if they might have been involved in what right. happened that day. Like, might? That's enough already. And we've had so many of these committee meetings. We've had so many books written about January 6th, so much video evidence. I mean, it's it's remarkable. And the thing about this whole issue is the reason why I don't think it will really stick is because this is not a major issue in voters' minds. You know, inflation is number one. Halloween candy is thir- 13%. Are you kidding me? That's going to cause riots in the streets. Um, <laughs> I also think that it's just not... It's not at the forefront because only half the population really cares about it. Right. You know, mm-hmm. does any rank and file Republican say, you know, I really hope Trump is held accountable? You know, no, it's just that's not what they're really talking about. They're talking about issues that hurt them. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's such a blip on the radar. And I think that's a shame because what happened that day was not a blip on the radar. People at radar. People lost their lives and it could have been a lot worse. It's the closest we've had to real anarchy in the nation's capital since, I don't know, the Civil War, or, you know, War of 1812. It's just when you even bring up those conflicts with relation to January 6th, you're already acknowledging that it was a historically unprecedented event. And, you know, my biggest takeaway from all of this is that it's a, it's a shame that the committee will, you know, exist by a thread and it will, you know, die by a thread. Because once, assuming that um, the Republicans take back the House, you know, they're not going to continue this committee, you know, Kevin McCarthy is going to be the new speaker, and there's no way he's going to let this slide. And some of the Republicans on the committee, both of them, in fact, will no longer be in Congress. And there will be no momentum to continue investigating it, and it will die. It's not like 9-11 where there's broad bipartisan support to find out what happened or any other sort of thing. Even if you go back into the 60s, like the, the, the Warner Commission for JFK, there's nothing that will continue this investigation beyond what has already happened. And I feel like the Sabina will just fall on deaf ears because Trump is so uncooperative, so distant from the events on the ground that it will just 
peter out and never really be talked about again. And, you know, it's a shame because I feel like there's something that has to be investigated here. There's something more, but it's just they're operating in a limited power power field. And, you know, it's hopefully we'll hopefully something nice happens. I want to see something really crazy happen before the midterms, because honestly, there needs to be something new in the political drama that is 2022. I'm waiting for the season finale. (laughs) But Nick, I haven't gone to you and you're a very politically conscious man. What do you think about all this? Well, like you said, people are struggling to afford to go to work. People can't even put milk and bread on the table. That is what Americans are thinking about right now. And it's very interesting to see all this and see what happens and what's right, what's wrong. But at the end of the day, people are focused on inflation and putting food in their, you know, in their stomachs and making sure they're sleeping all right and are able to live their lives freely. Yeah. That's the top concern. It's all about the immediate things, and this is not an immediate thing. Well, that's going to wrap it up for January 6th here in the One Wake Up Call when we come back and interview with Dr. Jameson Webster about teen mental health right here on 88.7 WRHU. But first, but first, I'm sorry, last week we played Britney Spears, and I think that went over so well. We've got another Britney Spears classic. It's called Baby One More Time right here on 88.7 FM WRHU. Here on the morning wake-up call, 88.7 FM, WRHU, Danny Sibyl, Amelia, and Nick Costanza. We're going right into a discussion about mental health. And when it comes to teenagers specifically, it's safe to say that the last few years haven't been too kind to their mental health between social unrest, the pandemic. And that is along with all the individual stressors that, you know, get on all of us in our own lives. According to the CDC, almost half of high school students, 44%, said they felt persistently sad or hopeless during the past year. More than a third, over 37%, said they had poor mental health during the pandemic. The New York Times has launched an opinion project called It's Not Just You, which focuses on mental health in American society. And now we're joined live over Zoom by Dr. Jameson Webster, a clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst, who is also a part-time assistant professor at the New School. Dr. Webster's contribution to the project is titled Teenagers Are Telling Us That Something Is Wrong With America. It explores how this mental health crisis among teens is perhaps just not indicative of external factors, but in and of itself a factor that we should all take heed of. Dr. Webster, thank you for joining the Morning Wake Up Call. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. And so I want to go to a line that you wrote in your article. You wrote that American adolescents are, quote, the lightning rod of the zeitgeist. Can you elaborate on what you mean by that as it relates to the topic of your article? Yeah, when I was approached by the Times about this project, they wanted to think about um, how to get away from the idea of mental illness as something individual, in which case it's just put on the shoulders of an individual or in their immediate family or community, and to think about you know what, what in society contributes to it. And I immediately thought of adolescence, one, because of the staggering statistics, which by the way, go before the pandemic, the suicide rates in teenagers were rising starting in 2007 when they had been falling for quite a long time, and they've, ri- they've risen now 56%. And they're using more and more lethal means, which, is, you know, which means that they are successful um, in their acts. They're not just cries for help. So this is really, really shocking, and this is very, very alarming. And what I always learned in a very classical psychiatric and psychoanalytic education is that adolescence is the moment when you go, of course, we all know this, from child to adult, But the pressures in your body from puberty create a certain kind of tension in which you have to search the world for what's going to hold you together. And this is the creation of our very basic first attempt at an identity. 
And this identity speaks to what is possible in the world at that moment. This is why, you know, really interesting revolutions, really interesting forms of art take place at that point in time. And if we have this much trouble with our adolescence, we really have to look at our society. We really have to think what is going on. And there's a particular kind of nihilism and hopelessness and failure to find an ideal that will bring them into the future, bring them a sense of what kind of an adult can I be? What can I hope for? You know, what do I want to do with my life? That's um, leading them into, you know, forms of distress that are um, very intense and which I had not seen before in my clinical practice. And to what extent are young Americans a reflection of how the country is versus being a warning about where the country is going? Well, it's both. I think they're both a reflection of where the country is. And I think that they're like a canary in the coal mine saying, hey, you know, we really need to look at ourselves and we need to think about what we have to do for the younger generation. So, you know, I hope that we'll listen to them more rather than medicate them or, you know, kind of say, oh, they've got to get their act together. (laughs) You know, this kind of way of treating adolescents, but actually hear what they have to say. In your work, um, you elaborated about the concerns you noticed in adolescents and teens. Can you just talk about that a little bit for our listeners? Yeah, so I, you know, I gave some kind of cases in the piece that I just wanted to, you know, speak to the climate, which is that um, they're in a lot of pain and they're in a lot of confusion about um, becoming adults, becoming sexual adults, becoming professional adults. They feel like the world is very hypocritical. Um, They feel like, you know, they're being told constantly that, you know, we're in climate crisis, that things are becoming more and more unequal. So why should they want any of the things that we want them to want? And on top of that, you know, I think social media gives all kinds of contradictory images. And we know this about girls in particular, that girls are really affected by social media because on the one hand, they're told that they can do as much as anybody else, more than any other point in history, but they are as objectified, they are as sexualized, and they are as um, kind of used imagistically as they always have been. So they're really put between a rock and a hard place. And they're saying, hey, come on, I don't understand this. Um, So you mentioned that part of the solution is listening to adolescents. Uh, Do you think that adolescents are being over-medicated and not really listened to enough? I do. I think um, I think in general, we've we've sort of gone over the tipping point with medication and with diagnoses and with um, labels for difficulty, mental difficulties that speak to a diagnosis that's the individual's problem. And, you know, when I talk to teens in the very beginning, they say, oh, well, my friend has ADHD or my friend has eating disorders. But what these things might signify as a symptom of a, a problem that's real and that has some truth in it, they're not being reflected by society. So when you speak to them about this and you say, hey, you know, these things aren't just problems, they have meanings. It's a huge load off of their shoulders to think that the reason that I'm suffering actually has some truth in it. It has something to say. It has something worth listening to as opposed to just being a problem that you shouldn't have or that needs to be managed. 
And on that note, in your piece, you write about discussing, having a discussion with a patient of yours, you refer to them as B, and you describe their fantasy of withdrawal, as in retreating to the countryside, not being a part of society in that sense, uh, raising dogs. What do you make of that sort of aversion to being, you know, a part of contemporary America? Is there something there that teens don't want to be a part of the whole rat race? I absolutely think that they feel the pressures of the rat race. They feel the way in which the rat race has affected their families and their loved ones. Um, I think if any of us looked inside, we're all kind of wondering why it feels like there's no exit ramp or there's no relief or there's no space to breathe or think. I mean, even the way in which social media and media in general has taken over every crevice of our lives is a feeling of kind of asphyxiation. Um, and and they're pointing to that that they want out. They want they want to feel like there's a way that one can breathe and have a life and think um, without just having to constantly produce. And if you think about it, with especially kids in New York, I mean they are scheduled from morning till night. You know they don't just get to play in the park or have downtime. I mean, it, 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 we've done something to childhood that makes it look like a mini version of an adulthood that we don't even like. So, right. And how can our cultural and political leaders be more receptive and help out America's young population with mental health? Well, one, we don't have services and we don't have um, many, many families don't have coverage to find people to talk to. And we know that we don't have providers and we also know that we haven't trained providers that well. I mean, nowadays you can get a degree. I I studied for 15 years. Nowadays you can get a, a degree to be a counselor in two years. So we need to look at these kinds of questions, both about the training of good clinicians and the the way in which we provide services. Um, And then the third is I think they're telling us that it's very hard to look at the future and say, I don't know if I'm gonna have healthcare. I don't know if I'm gonna be taken care of as an old person. I don't know what I'm gonna do with my student debt. I don't understand how I'm going to have a house. Everyone's saying that, you know, nowadays the kind of American dream where you'll have your own house and you'll be able to live a life with a decent amount of integrity and sense of security um, isn't guaranteed anymore. And this is this is very hard to be a young person and, and look at a future that doesn't offer um, even those very basic building blocks. So, I you know, I think these are the issues that we have to really look inside about. Certainly. And once again, that was Dr. Jameson Webster, clinical psychologist and psychoanalyst. She penned a piece for the New York Times titled Teenagers Are Telling Us That Something Is Wrong With America, Exploring How Mental Health Among Teens Is Indicative of Problems With The Country and How We Can Possibly Look Forward. Dr. Webster, thank you so much for joining us this morning about a very serious issue. Thank you. Thank you very much. No problem. And we come back here on the Morning Wake Up Call. Amelia gives us the latest on the surge in RSV. But first, another song break, We Are Young by Fun, right here on the Morning Wake Up Call, 88.7 FM, WRHU. We Are Young, which was, as we just learned, Sibyl's song back in the day. You're listening to 88.7 yes, 88- it was. Yes, it was. <laughs> listening to 88.7 FM, WRHU. Sibyl alongside myself, Danny, Amelia, and Nick Costanzo. And our next story is about a disease that has been spreading rapidly among Young pop, young people, but not just young people, young, young people, as in infants and toddlers. Amelia, what's the scoop 
with RSV. Sure, Danny. So over the past three to four weeks, hospitals around the country have been reporting a surge in RSV cases. So RSV, for our listeners that are not aware, it's a virus that mainly, as Danny mentioned, affects infants and can cause serious illness. The virus actually began circulating in the summer, which surprised medical experts because it usually peaks in the winter. For many kids, RSV is just a common cold, but much like COVID-19, it can be more severe for children with lung diseases or weakened immune systems. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, RSV results in around 58,000 annual hospitalizations and 100 to 300 deaths among children under 5. At Comer Children's Hospital in Chicago, the hospital and the ICU beds have been full for over a month. Dr. John Cunningham, the hospital's physician-in-chief, said that the emergency room is seeing a 150% higher volume than it's usual for October. He said that the hospital is treating around 10 to 30 RSV patients at a given time, so they are occupying a large share of its 30 ICU and 60 emergency beds. So some scary news here. Danny, Sibyl, what do you guys think? I think it's just a horrible side effect of COVID in that we really spent so much time worrying about one disease that the protections we took against one virus inadvertently made us more vulnerable to another. I was reading a great article on uh, CBS News that said that it was really because of the masking, right? We had so many people masked. There wasn't a lot of chance to be out and about getting immunity to certain diseases that once we started doing it again, our immune systems weren't exactly ready. They weren't up to the test, especially younger Americans. Think about my cousin had a child during the pandemic, right? That child, you know, who didn't have as much, you know, outward social experience with other kids or out just in, in outdoors, right? Did not have as much time to build up their immune system so that when they do put themselves in a classroom setting or, a, like a, you know, with family members or whatever, they're not equipped to handle potential pathogens that might infect them. It's just the nature of when we were so, you know, hunkered down and not interacting as much that once we started to do so, these disease came at us stronger than usual. And I think that's unfortunate. You can, there's no fault in being overly vigilant, but the sad part of it is that diseases like this are able to find headway among vulnerable sects of the population. Right. And as if it isn't already a scary enough time for new parents. I mean, they're just getting over the COVID-19 fear. Maybe they still aren't over it. And it's also especially expensive to be a parent of young children now. And now there's this to worry about. So, I mean, hopefully we see fewer cases in the near future. I don't think so because these numbers don't look promising. But, yeah, it's a, it's definitely a terrifying time to be a parent. Yeah, I mean, I agree with both of you guys that this is definitely scary to hear about, especially as we've been talking about after the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, just, you know, hearing these kind of news reports of hospital beds filling up, it's very unnerving. It's a reminder of the pandemic that each of us experienced firsthand in some way. Thankfully, though, RSV treatments and vaccines are on their way. A San Diego hospital is actually set to participate in a clinical trial of an RSV antiviral drug from Pfizer later this year. So there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, but in the meantime, uh, parents you know, of these younger children should just take extra precautionary measures, I would say. I think we live in a golden age of vaccines. Wouldn't you agree? I agree. Golden age, golden age. I, and I think some at some point we take them for granted, given that it's become such a politicized issue and, you know, not everybody gets the vaccines that maybe they should. And 
it's crazy because a lot of the vaccines we get, we get them as infants or, and children, right? So right. we don't even really remember getting that shot. And I think that's the ultimate tragedy of living in a golden age of vaccines. They're so ubiquitous and they're given out so readily to young, young people when they're born in the first couple of years of their life that when they grow up, you don't even re realize that, oh, I'm, I'm vaccinated against this disease, I'm vaccinated against that disease. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. But I, I saw uh, Mr. Costanzo raise his hand in the back of the room. I did. Just and I class. think, you know, as the benevolent professor that I am, I'm going to call on you. So what Thank do you have to you. share with the class, you, Nick? Professor. Well, we also didn't mention that there was a baby formula shortage. So what mm -hmm. a horrible thing that's happening to all these infants and children. It's so incredibly sad. You have all these parents and mothers that are trying to take care of their babies, and they can't even get formula and baby food. The cost of that is also up. So all you can do is cross your fingers and hope for the best. Seriously, it's scary. Yeah, mm -hmm. hopefully this outbreak is able to you know come to an end sooner rather than later with all those vaccines. But that's what's going on with RSV when we come back an interview with Hofstra lacrosse player Danny DeSanti. Hey, a fellow Danny right here on Hofstra Winnipeg Call on 88.7 FM WRHU. You're listening to the Hofstra Winnipeg Call 88.7 FM WRHU. Danny Sibyl, Amelia, and Nick Costanzo, the Monday crew, the Manic Monday crew. And one thing I don't think we talk about enough on the Morning Wake Up Call is people who have unique individual stories right here at Hofstra, right? To that end, we're joined live on Zoom by Hofstra men's lacrosse player Danny DeSanti. Danny previously attended West Point and has collaborated with the Tunnels to Towers Foundation. Danny, from a fellow Danny, it is a privilege to welcome you on the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call. Good morning, man. Good morning, Danny. Thanks for having me. Anytime. So, Danny, could you give us a little bit more about your background and your story for your, from, your, from your life experiences? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I graduated from St. Anthony's back in 2015. I proceeded to go to United States Military Academy from 2016 to 2019. Came to Hofstra in 2020 for my fifth year. And sadly, COVID kind of put a, a damper on that season. So then I had to uh, go back into my, uh, my military um, contract for another two years. I was down in D.C. for the past two years. Had a good time with that, and I had an extra year of eligibility, called Coach Tierney, and we made it happen for one last time. And if you can elaborate more on what your experience was at West Point, and more specifically, what the transition has been like being at Hofstra now. Absolutely. So at West Point, very long days. Of course, uh, all military people go through long days. Um, definitely a interesting place to be from. Uh, definitely uh, difficult and very challenging. But the the experience that I had there was definitely definitely worth it. It helped me become who I am today. It helped me become the leader leader I am on and off the field. Um, transitioning to Hofstra, it was kind of rather easy because just the players in the locker room, the coaches on the coaching staff. They made it very simple uh, when I transferred from from West Point over to over to Hofstra in 2020. I only got a little bit of a few uh, a few weeks, a few months with them before COVID hit and took away our our season because we are a spring spring sport. But uh, this fall ball has been fantastic. I've really uh, started to uh, come into my own here. 
and really developed some great relationships with some of my uh, with some of my teammates. That's great to hear, Danny. So, what made you want to attend Hofstra specifically? I've always, I'm from Long Island. I'm from uh, Dix Hills, and I've I grew up watching Hofstra lacrosse since I was a little kid. Always came to the uh, quarterfinals that that's held here every year for the NCAA's. So, uh, I've also played with uh, Coach Tierney's son, Ryan Tierney. Uh, I'm sure everyone remembers him. Um, so it was. I had a lot of friends come here, so when I was going through the transition, uh, the trans, uh, the transfer portal, I knew a lot of the current uh, teammates that I was going to be having, so it made it really simple. Uh, it was close to home. I, I am a family guy, so I always loved the fact that I'm able to go home whenever I wanted to. Um, my parents are able to be at every lacrosse game. It's very important to me, and it, it just it just feels like home here. Even though yes, you're only 20 minutes away, uh, Hofstra just has a great feel to it. The campus is awesome and always loved uh, always loved being around here. I'd like to make a shift and have you discuss another positive part of your life, which is Tunnel for Towers. And if you could just share your work that you've done with them. Yes, so Tunnel Towers, I'm currently in the application process for their student athlete uh, advocate program. Uh, this program is what helps getting kids um, of you know, college kids around my age that are maybe not aware so much or weren't weren't uh, even born yet uh, when 9/11 happened. It's a it's an organization that is named after uh, Stephen Siller, um, who was a firefighter who laid down his life on September 11, 2001. Um, the Tom Towers Foundation hosts the 5K every year, um, which Hofstra men's and women's lacrosse uh, participate in. And they, they do such wonderful things. They help support uh, the nation's first responders, veterans, and their families, uh, providing homes uh, for them behind mortgage-free homes. And it, it really is an awesome organization. I've run the, five, uh, the Tom Towers 5K um, twice with, uh, with when, when I was at West Point, uh, twice with Hofstra, and I've done a couple of my own 9-11 memorial workouts and in coordination with them uh, and fundraising and donating with them. So when the opportunity for NIL deals for uh, for the name, image, and likeness deals were uh, coming into play for college athletes, I mean, they, they were the first in mind. And I'm, I'm very fortunate to be a part of the application process to help spread that word in something that's, that I'm very passionate about. And going off that, what would it mean to you if you were accepted as an ambassador? You mentioned all the work you did with them already. You know, what would the honor you know mean to you specifically if you were accepted by the program? It, it would be a tremendous honor. It's something, as I stated, is so important to me. Uh, sadly, lost my uh, lost my godfather's brother uh, just recently to uh, 9/11 uh, cancer complications uh, this past February. Uh, I got a bunch of uh, friends back home who lost loved ones during that day. Um, and for something that's so close to home, be, being a part of of something that brings just a little bit of light to the situation is is pretty incredible. Um, the, the story of Steve Siller and what he did on that day uh, just shows, shows the true uh, heroism that, we sh uh, that was displayed th throughout 
so many lives uh, that day. It would just to be considered to be an ambassador for them would be a tremendous honor for me. Yeah, well, it's amazing to hear how passionate you are and you're already doing such incredible things. Um, and I want to know what your future goals are for once you're out of school. So after uh, all, already living almost a, a whole second life, I gladly just finished my time with, with the service uh, at the seven years. Um, I'm currently working as a client associate with Merrill Lynch, um, with, uh, which also is part of Bank of America. And hopefully we'll have that job lined up once I graduate here after I'm done with my MBA. And from there, I'll continue uh, trying to play lacrosse as much as I can uh, as at the top level that I, that I can be a part of, continue coaching some of the youth clubs that I've been a part of, and staying a part of uh, Hofstra community as long as possible. All sound like very, very amazing goals. Uh, Danny, Danny DeSanti, Hofstra men's lacrosse player, collaborated with Tunnels to Towers Foundation, previously attended West Point. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on the Morning Week Call. Really, really glad talking to you. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Anytime, man. It was a great, great discussion with Danny DeSanti, guys. I, I, I enjoy, I like having Hofstra community members on the show because it really gives us a chance to, you know, spotlight them and talk about what's going on right in our backyard, right? I agree. Great. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was great to hear, like, his story. That dude has definitely done a lot in such a short time. Absolutely. And speaking of someone who's done a lot in a short time, Nick Costanzo. Oh, Danny, don't flatter me. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's time for the weekly Nick report where what's going, you know, usually it's politics, you would say? Correct. Usually it's politics. This week it's politics. Absolutely. So the political scene, as described by Nick Costanzo, we got the bed playing now. All right. It's your time go. to shine. All right. Amid growing global energy demand and rising carbon dioxide emissions, a majority of Americans say the United States should prioritize the development of renewable energy sources, such as wind and solar, and take steps toward the country becoming carbon neutral by 2050. Still, Americans stop short of backing a complete break with fossil fuels, and many foresee unexpected problems in a major transition to renewable energy. Partisan affiliation remains the dominant divide, with the midterms right around the corner. Given climate and energy issues, Republicans and Democrats are staking out competing visions for the country's energy future. Within the GOP, there is internal disagreement around the goal of the U.S. becoming carbon neutral. 66% of moderate and liberal Republicans favor taking steps toward this, while 64% of conservative Republicans oppose this. 64% of moderate and liberal Republicans say there should be a development of alternative sources such as wind and solar. Here is Maryland Governor Republican Larry Hogan. Our administration has already invested $44 million towards solar and renewable energy projects in Maryland. And we invested $3 million for workforce training for green jobs. Whereas 67% of conservative Republicans say there should be an expansion of the production of oil, coal, and natural gas to create energy independence. Here is House Minority Leader Republican Kevin McCarthy. If we want to lower prices and protect the environment, we must prioritize American energy independence. 
Moving on to Democrats and independents who lean toward the Democratic Party. 49% of Democrats say the U.S. should try to phase out the use of oil, coal, and natural gas. Here is Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders. If people don't like nuclear, if we don't like coal, if we don't like oil, if we don't like gas, well, you know what, I think we should do everything we can uh, to move toward wind and do it in an environmentally sensitive way with the participation of local people. Whereas 50% want a mix of energy sources, including fossil fuels, to stay independent from other foreign nations. Here is West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin. Our oil and gas industry partners also need to come to the table and do the right thing for our country and the consumers that rely on their product. We are going to continue talking about these issues in the coming days and weeks because energy security and energy independence must be top of mind for all of us. And 63% of liberal Democrats say the U.S. should phase out the use of fossil fuels entirely. Here is New York Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or better known as AOC. The fossil fuel industry and the future of humanity are fundamentally incompatible. They just are. I mean, that's not a political opinion. That is the science. We continue to burn fossil fuels. Our planet will become inhabitable. Midterm polls show steps towards producing clean energy and moving away from oil, coal, and natural gas is popular. Democrats and Republicans are neck and neck on the partisan issue, with Democrats with a slightly higher approval from independents who want cleaner, newer energy. Politicians who push for energy diversification with positive views of all energy alternatives will most likely do the best in November. Thank you so much, Nick, for that report. I, I'm glad you incorporated the polling on this because I think, you know, it's, sometimes it's pretty self-explanatory who favors what. Right. But it's important to see that the political middle, because most people really are independents, even Correct. if they don't want to admit it. Agreed. Um, they just have to take a party because some states require an affiliation to vote in the primaries. New Jersey is one of them. Uh, so that's why I know. Um, no, you're correct. Yeah. And uh, if there was an independent politician out there who advocated for the best of both sides, wow, what what an impact that would make. But our political system is it's it's very tough for an independent to get in there and really diversify everything. Except Bernie. Except, except Bernie. Except Bernie. He's a <laughs> but thank you so much for the energy. I like how we circled back to climate. Yeah. We started with the protesters, and now we finish with climate. But there's one more story that I'm just dying to talk about. It's about Cartoon Network, one of my childhood staples. So there's a whole restructuring situation going on at Warner Brothers. You might have heard about this with the whole Batgirl movie dying and then HBO Max getting a massive purge. Um it's a corporate implosion, okay? That's what I want to call it, a corporate implosion. The latest casualty is, again, a step too far Cartoon Network. So we talked about the Batgirl movie. 82 Warner Bros. employees were fired. 43 openings were revoked. Cartoon Network is merging with Warner Brothers Animation in a cost-cutting move. That means that the prominent original Cartoon Network IPs like Craig of the Week and Summer Camp Island shows that already had their episode orders cut in half will be in serious jeopardy as the studio focuses on rebo rebooting older IPs for the gazillionth time, like the new Velma show or the new Powerpuff Girls show. CEO David Salzav's series of moves have aimed to trim the budget by $3 billion dollars. But Cartoon Network tweeted, we're not dead, we're just turning 30, which 
Yeah, it's kind of funny. But um, there's no denying that what is going on at Warner Brothers is not good if you are a fledgling animator who has a good original idea. Because what they're promoting, they're promoting you know, IPs that already are doing well and that are easy to make. Look, I love the Harley Quinn show on HBO Max as much as the next guy. I love Looney Tunes cartoons as much as the next guy. But, like, I want to see something new. Think about all the shows on Cartoon Network that were original. Like, I go back, even if you want to go back to the late 90s, early 2000s, like, Johnny Bravo. Seth MacFarlane was on Johnny Bravo. He was one of the writers, and then he became Seth MacFarlane, right? That's the hub for where you have these new shows. Cartoon Network was also the birthplace of Adventure Time, regular show, wholly unique shows, completely new IPs, new ideas that were defining moments of, you know, Gen Gen X, not Gen X, Gen Z. And there's a rep from Warner Brothers, Polygon reported that Cartoon Network is not disappearing and has many projects in development, but man, Warner Brothers really fell off. I did a little straw poll in the RHU office. I asked, what's the best streaming service? This was last year this time. HBO Max won handily. Now I feel like it's very up in the air. I think Netflix has gained a lot of ground. But back to the Cartoon Network situation. Do you guys have any affiliation for Cartoon Network? Well, I just want to comment on what you said about HBO Max. I feel like they still still do produce a lot of good content, especially Euphoria, you know, and they pull a lot of viewers from that. But that was a year ago. That was a year ago. Right, 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 right. (laughs) But talking about Cartoon Network, um, I do have to agree that this merger, it's a little bit saddening to hear about. And, of course, as you mentioned, it's causing a lot of discourse amongst TV fans. Uh, It's also strange to me, like you talked about how they're – straying away from original content and just turning to reboots and revamps like i just don't know how many times they can do that before it gets stale and people are like over it however though uh cartoon network ratings have been declining for some time according to nielsen data viewership fell by 26 percent in 2021 so i can understand from like a business sense how this was maybe a smart idea but Nonetheless, I, I don't know how it's going to go over. All right, Sibyl, Nick, we have a couple minutes left. What are your thoughts? We'll start with Sibyl. Yeah, I mean, it's just saddening to me because I'm a big cartoon person. I watch Cartoon Network all the time, still in my adult years. Um, but I guess I get it. It does, however, sound like they're trying to revert back to, I don't know if you guys remember the channel Boom um, Boomerang? Oh, yes. Yeah, so that was a channel for people who don't know that just basically showed all like reruns of the old cartoons. So that was things like the Flintstones, the Smurfs, the Jeffers- Jeffersons, Jetsons? Jetsons? Jetsons, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so it seems like that's what they're trying to do, which is kind of annoying because we're already living in an age of like reboots and spinoffs, and it's just too much. I don't think that this is going to be what saves them, even if they are... Um, you know, not doing well in this Nielsen data that uh, Amelia just shared. So I don't know. It's just like kind of saddening. But I think it's good we're talking about it because I think a lot of people were confused about what exactly was going on. Because I think when um, Cartoon Network posted, we're not dead, we're just turning 30, people thought that the original information about um, the merge was false. Yeah. So... Yeah, Nick, what do you have to say? You have a minute, Nick. Well, I unfortunately am a little mad at Warner Brothers. If you're familiar with DC, 
and yeah. what happened with Zack Snyder. Yeah, you're they, still mad about that? Oh, I will forever be mad about that. <laughs> I loved Snyder's Cut. I thought it was amazing. I watched all three hours or four hours? Four hours. Four hours. I watched all four hours of it. I loved it, and they should have continued it, but they didn't, and that's what makes me sad. But it's okay. If Cartoon Network is making the moolah, do what you got to do. All right. Somebody still has a grudge. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that'll do it for this edition of the Monday Morning Week. Well, a jam-packed show, as usual, here on the first day of the week. From myself, Sabil, Amelia, and Nick, have a great rest of your week. It is mid-October. Halloween is not that far away. Maybe buy your candy now before the price goes up any further. And the Morning Wake-Up Call, of course, is back every day this week, 8 to 9 a.m. only on WRHU.